Good morning. So uh, let me also say, as Travis did at the beginning of the service to our uh, college students in the room, welcome back. Or if you're here for the first time, welcome for the first time. Let me be one of the first ones to welcome you, not only to Restoration Church, but also to Washington, D.C. Uh, so, so glad that you are here. You'll love this city. It'll drive you crazy. But that's one of the reasons why we love it so much. So we're grateful for you, Joey and Paige. Welcome back. We love you. Uh, yeah, so it's good to have you back. Uh, if you don't know, Joey's one of the pastors here is with us. He and his wife and their children have been on sabbatical for the past two and plus months. And so uh, let it uh, be said from the mountaintops how happy I am that he is back. Yeah, so grateful for that. Let me also just make you aware next week, uh, our brother Kenneth Jones will be preaching uh, we, one of the things that we do, our church does is on Mondays, once a month, we, we come in and invite other church planners that are planting churches in and around Washington, D.C. into our office, and we just try to help encourage them. Planting churches or starting churches is hard work, and so we bring them in once a month just to encourage them, love them, pray for them, talk about things, try to answer questions. We're a little bit in front of them, and so we can help them, and they oftentimes help us. And one of those uh, church planners is Kenneth Jones, KJ as we call him. And uh, KJ will be here next a week preaching uh, from Psalm 100. Uh, KJ leads a church called Redeemer City over in Brookland. So if you live close to Brookland, don't come here next week. Go there. Go to Redeemer City Church. It's a good church uh, where you'll be well cared for. All right. Well, uh, let me pray for us once more as we get ready to open up God's word and think about it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your grace and mercy to us in Christ. We love you. We thank you that you first loved us. And we thank you, God, that you have given us freedom in Christ. Teach us this morning how to live inside of that freedom, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, some of the most uh, recent studies say that Americans look at uh, screens some 10 hours a day. Uh, That's a lot of hours. And I think that might explain why Uh, we find that advertisers are getting us or being exposed to us some 5,000 times a day. So the average American sees some 5,000 advertisements a day. And in preparation for this sermon, I paid a little closer attention to them this week. It's interesting when you actually try to go find commercials. I found that it was a little more difficult, which is odd. But anyway, um, one of the commercials I saw was about a project management software where they kind of teach you how to manage various projects to help you there. Another one I saw was about superfoods and how if you eat these superfoods, it'll make your blood pressure better and all these other things that will uh, make you feel better. And then a third one I saw was for a Buick car, uh, and it was entitled uh, Discover More, Discover More. And I think that advertisement helps us see what advertisements do to us. They teach us to be discontent. So marketers are trained to do two things. One teach you to be discontent with what you do or don't have, so that then B, they can show you how you can be content with what they're offering you. so You can be happy with it. And so, for instance, going back to that Buick commercial, by saying discover more, this car ad was saying that your current car, if you have one, is less. And so, therefore, if you buy this car, you will have what? Discovered more. Teaching you to be discontent. And more is always better, isn't it? No, how about more debt, right? Not good. Is that freedom? Is more debt freedom? No, that's what we have today. The average United States household has some $16,000 of credit card debt. 
Almost every year that number goes up. So again, I'm not talking about school debt. I know you freshmen are going, yeah, I'm just getting into that. Uh, I'm not talking about mortgage debt, talking about credit card debt. So is more always better? Does more make us free? And the clear answer to that is no. No. But service providers in the, say, tech industry, clothing industry, entertainment industry, they don't want you to know that. They want, don't want you to be thinking about how more is not better, how it doesn't satisfy. They want to be sort of your masters of sorts, and they want uh, you to be their slaves so that you'll keep coming back to them and spending billions and billions. And most people in the world are buying into that logic. And so on this, our final week of talking about what freedom really is, we're going to talk about how we can have true freedom with our finances. So the whole purpose of this sermon series was to help you see what freedom is and what freedom is not. And lest it not be lost on all of us, this idea of freedom and the way that we're talking about freedom is very much an embattled topic. Um, It's oftentimes seen as though it's already been settled as to what freedom is, but it's not. And so we would be fools if we didn't acknowledge that these advertisements, for instance, were doing something to us. We're shaping us. We're influencing us to buy into their logic of a more uh, discontented, me-centered kind of world and not a Christ-centered world. And so we would be fools if we didn't acknowledge that the world's definition of freedom as getting sort of what I want isn't in some ways getting in on us. So without realizing, I think many of us have bought into the lie that independence, personalized authenticity or autonomy is the gateway to freedom, to life to joy, to contentment. Uh, That's exactly what the advertisements are teaching us to believe. And so let me give you another example of this. Take the box office hit Frozen. How many times have y'all sang those songs? Sadie and Ella Cade, I know have. So those songs, that Frozen, y'all know that song, Let It Go. We've heard it so many times. Let it go. Um, Just listening to some of the lyrics of this song, when we slow down and read it, it's interesting. She says, this is Elsa singing. I've never seen the movie, but I'm told that she's the one singing this. I have two little boys, so this is what she says. He says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. Let it go. Let it go. So how many little girls and little boys have sang that song? How many times have we sang that song? This notion that says no right, no wrong. No rules for me. Freedom. That's exactly how we're seeing that the world is defining freedom. Uh, Recall, as we've been seeing, the Oxford Dictionary defines freedom as the power or right to act, speak, or think as one wants. Every single day, the world's definition of freedom as no right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm freed, influences us in advertisements, in movies, and in music, making us, in the name of freedom, less free. More enslaved every day. More discontent, which might explain the malaise that we see in day-to-day society. According to Jesus, this notion of freedom is actually slavery. You can go back and look if you haven't. uh, A couple weeks ago, we thought about this from John chapter 8. But the good news is, here's the good news. The good news is Jesus has come to set us free from these notions of slavery. We've been defining freedom as true freedom is being freed from the guilt of our sin. And freed to love both God and neighbor. Freed from the guilt of our sin. Freed to love. 
Just like a fish is made for water, just like a train was made for train tracks, a bird was made to fly, we were not made to live ultimately for ourselves, but for God, to love God and to love neighbor as ourselves. And in Christ, all of that is possible. We can be free in him. Last week, we tried to apply this notion of time to to time, how freedom we can have freedom with time, how in Christ we're no longer bound by 70 or 80 years on earth. But we have life eternal in Christ, which makes it possible for us to love here and not get the most we can in the limited amount of time we have here. And so this week we turn to the other valuable resource that so often enslaves us, money. How is it we can be free with our money? And just in case you're showing up to our church this week, you're going, oh, it's one of those churches, right? Oh, you talk about money all the time. Well, let me say I'm. I have no aspirations of getting a $65 million jet. All right. No interest. My 2013 Nissan Altima is working just fine. I don't need another new car. This, our church's finances are doing just fine. We've taken up the offering. We're not going to take up another one. Right. Okay. So just, I want to, want you to know I'm up here preaching freely about money so that we can understand this and live in light of the freedom that we should have and can have in Christ with our money. So here's the big idea this morning. Big idea is freedom with money is found in two things. Freedom with money is found in two things, in humility and generosity. Humility and generosity. That's what we're going to see from 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. If we haven't told you that already, my apologies. 1 Timothy 6, 17 to 19. And this is what that says. This is the Apostle Paul writing to his young pastor. And he says to him here, says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Two points this morning. Here's the first one. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Do not set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. You'll recall we said in the first week of this series that slavery is believing lies because believing lies leads to death. And Jesus says on the other side that believing the truth sets you free. Take that straight from John 8. So it's important that we understand really clearly the lie that we are tempted to believe about money so that we won't be enslaved to money. But instead, we'll learn to be free in it. And here in this passage, we find that Paul is counseling the young pastor Timothy that those who are rich are in a dangerous position. Now we don't often think of wealth as danger, but we should. When's the last time you've seen somebody win the lottery and they go, oh, no. Right? It doesn't happen. We don't tend to think of it this way. And yet the Bible is so clear on this that there's danger in wealth. So I want to be clear. It doesn't say that it's wrong to be wealthy. It's not wrong to be rich. We see some of the greatest kings of Israel had a lot of wealth. But he does want us to understand the dangers of being rich, the enslaving powers of wealth. And what is that danger, you ask? Well, in verse 17, Paul tells Timothy to tell the rich to not be haughty. It's just a Sort of archaic word that means arrogant, prideful. So that tells us that one danger of wealth is pride or arrogance. Uh, 
I'm sure all of us can tell stories of how we've seen this happen to people, right? Someone gets wealthy and they lose their touch with reality. And as a result, they become rude. They become insensitive because they think that they're better than everyone else. They will wall themselves in from uh, walls themselves off from society. They'll begin to think that because they're wealthy, they kind of deserve a certain lifestyle or a certain treatment since that's what they've become used to. And if that happens to us, we can be sure that wealth did not set us free. It actually is enslaving us. Which leads to the next thing. So we've seen so far, pride is slavery and money can feed pride. But also the other thing Paul says here is to charge the rich to set their hopes on God, not on the uncertainty of riches. So the temptation or danger seems to be that if you have wealth, you'll be more tempted to set your hopes on what that wealth will get you instead of setting your hope on the certainty of God himself. So two dangers, two possibilities of slavery that we need to be aware of in order to be free with our finances. One, wealth can tempt us to be arrogant. Two, wealth can tempt us to set our hopes on what the wealth, uh, what that wealth can get, get us. So wealth in that way fuels pride. Pride helps us to not set our hope on God. And so how many of us actually think about this? I mean, all of us would like to have more money, but how much of our actually slowing down to think about what this wealth could do to us? See, most of the world assumes that to be wealthy or to have a lot of money is to be free. Rarely, if ever, do we consider the fact that too much money may actually be leading us into slavery, to death, to destruction, and away from freedom. And this, friends, is the, here's the picture of the beauty of the Bible. There's a constant refrain about this that's speaking truthfully to this. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 8 and 9 says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of God. So there we see poverty is also not as enslaving in its own way. So we should mention that and since we're talking so much about wealth. But we see there that more money can lead to what? More problems, right? Ecclesiastes 5.10, we see whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. That's just another way of saying that more people that want more money are enslaved. Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, talks about here the deceitfulness of riches. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We find in the parable of the soils, uh, soils that Jesus says of that seed that fell on the thorns in Matthew 13, 22, the seed among the thorns, he says, this is Jesus, the seed among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word. Now, I could mention more, but I think you get the point. Wealth is apparently a well-trodden pathway to slavery. Because it finds us more prideful, more thinking of ourselves, hopes not in God, nor His people. And so riches deceive us into thinking that we are more important than others. It tempts us into setting on uh, our hopes on the uncertainty of things uh, and instead of setting our hopes on the certainty of God, as we'll see. And so that helps us understand the predominance of the Bible's warnings against riches. So not only here in chapter 6, verse 17 of 1 Timothy, but just look back, slide up a little bit further in verse 9 of chapter 6, and you'll see there it says this. 
But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. This is a familiar passage many of you know. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We get those very bold words from James in James 5.1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. What does he mean by that? Well, slide down to verse 6. He says, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. And self-indulgence, as we've already seen, is not the way we're meant to live. Time and time again, the Bible is clear about how the increase of money can lead you into setting your hopes on yourself or what you can get uh, from that money and not on God. And all that leads to is slavery, death, and away from freedom. Even if it appears to be freedom on the outside, it's deceitful. I think Dietrich Bonhoeffer sums all of this up so well when he says, Be not anxious. Earthly possessions dazzle our eyes and delude us into thinking that they can provide security and freedom from anxiety. Yet all the time, they are the very source of anxiety. If our hearts are set on them, our reward is anxiety whose burden is intolerable. Unquote. Let me give you some worldly examples of this. You guys ever heard of a guy by the name of Elon Musk? So Elon Musk is the CEO of Tesla, a car maker. He has what the world would say is an incredible amount of worth. Many people would want his wealth. Uh, he's the epitome of all of that. Uh, he was interviewed by the New York Times last week, and this is what he said. He says, quote, This past year has been the most difficult and painful year of my career. It was excruciating. The article goes on to say that throughout the interview, he choked up and crying many times. He said that he missed his brother's wedding this summer. He spent his birthday holed up in Tesla's offices as the company raced to meet a production target. When asked how it affected his health, he said, quote, it's not great. I've had a lot of friends come by that are really concerned. He's been working, he says, up to 120 hours a week. And he said he has not taken off more than a week since 2001. He says, quote, there were times when I didn't leave the factory for three or four days. This has really come at the expense of seeing my kids and seeing friends. And that leads us, I think, to a similar account of somebody else that would be seen as successful and wealthy, uh, maybe as free in the eyes of the world, the, uh, the uh, creator of Apple and the iPhone, Steve Jobs. His daughter recounts what it was like growing up with her dad. And he sa- she says, at one point, she mentions all these Porsches that he would buy. She gets the courage to ask him for one of these Porsches when she's older. And not only did he tell her no in that moment, he rebuked her and said, you'll never get a penny of my wealth. She goes on to conclude, for him, this is his daughter, for him I was a blot on a spectacular ascent as my story did not fit with the narrative of greatness and virtue he might have wanted for himself. My existence ruined his streak. Unquote. I think actor Jim Carrey sums it up all quite well when he says, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Now, to be clear, for most of us, we don't have our uh, sights set on the likes of Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or Jim Carrey. But friends, the reality is the same cancer that affects the super wealthy affects us in smaller forms. We need to be aware of that. 
Don't be getting into the notion of thinking, well, that's just them. That's not really me. I'll never get there. But no, the same cancer that affects them can affect us. It may not be a Porsche, but for us, it may just be just a little bit more of this, or a little bit more of that, just a little better vacation next year, just a little better car, just a little bigger house, just a little bit more of this or that same cancer. Riches, friends, are not the pathway to freedom, nor is poverty. But riches are not the pathway to freedom. Riches oftentimes can enslave us, as is evidenced by the word of God and the testimony of these men. Riches may very well be the pathway to slavery. And so you say to me, well, okay, well, Nathan, you've shown me what wealth is not. You've shown me that it's it is slavery. But can you help me see what you said you were going to help me see? You can help me see how, how we can think of freedom or wealth as freedom. Well, let's do that. So don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. And secondly, you should know where I'm going here. Set your hope on God. Set your hope on God. First Timothy 6.17, right there in front of you. First off, notice the addition of those two words, present age. You see that there? This goes back to, the last, to last week's sermon. Paul understands that we are but a mist. This world as we know it is but a mist. This age is passing. Therefore, don't build up treasures on earth where rust and moth destroy, as Jesus says. Look to the future. Look at verse 19. Look to the future. Look to set your hope on heaven. Let's go back to about four weeks ago to uh, Nick's sermon. Colossians 3. But also by saying the rich of this present age, he recognizes something that I think much of the world doesn't. That there is a wealth that is greater than the treasures of this world. Greater than the treasures of this world. There is a wealth that's greater than the treasures of this world. As for the rich in this present age, so which is to say that there are those that are rich in another age. An age to come, and that is those of us who are in Christ, trusting Christ for salvation. We, friends, have been one to God, and He is of the highest wealth. He is of the highest wealth. There's nothing more valuable than Jesus. Nothing. Nothing that even begins to approach Him. Not only that, He, Jesus, is fixed. He is immovable. He does not spoil. He does not fade. He is even transcendent to time. That's why Paul says what he does next. As for the rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. And then notice how he uses the words there. Who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So it's not freedom to set your hopes on something that is uncertain and spoils or fades. It's temporal. It is freedom to set your hopes on something that never fades and never will fade. Everything that you have to enjoy. Everything you have to enjoy. Look further down to verse 19 again. Take hold, he says, of that which is truly life. Earthly wealth gives some life, but not that which is truly life. Friends, this is why you see so many wealthy people so unhappy. Money cannot buy joy. Jesus bought it at the cross with His blood. That was where it was bought for us. True joy, true life was bought there. True freedom was bought there. And for all those that trust Christ for salvation, all those that trust His sacrifice for true life, you can truly have life. And His life is the life that is true life. In Him, what does it say there? You have Everything you need. It is richly provided. Everything you need to enjoy. 
I keep saying this verse, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Not material blessings in the earthly places. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have all that we need there. Things that are eternal. Christ at the cross has richly given us everything that we need for life and for joy. Therefore, set your hopes on God and follow hard after Him and His freedom that He provides for you. Remember we said a couple weeks ago it was for what? Freedom that we have been set free. Freedom we have been set free. Freedom is found in being reconciled to God through the blood of Christ in order that we might have everything that we need in God Himself. And this is exactly not only the power that we have in Christ and in His Gospel, but this is also the pattern that we see in Jesus. That he doesn't need those wealth. He's willing to give up the wealth of heaven, as it were, to bring the wealth to us that we might enjoy that forever promised land. You can think about 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. What a great verse for this topic. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so what is that wealth again? What is that which is true life? What is that which is true freedom? What is the everything that God has richly provided for us to enjoy? Well, again, 2 Corinthians, another verse, 5, 9, 19. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their or our trespasses against them or us, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So in other words, in Christ, by His grace, God no longer holds our guilt over us. So many people that are pursuing wealth are trying to pursue it in order to try to work off the guilt that they feel about themselves or they're trying to prove themselves to those they love or want to impress. That's slavery. And in Christ, Christ releases us from such guilt. We don't have to make a lot of money to seem successful in order to quiet our own consciences or theirs. Those of us who are in Christ, we have our guilt dealt with there at the cross. We, we don't need wealth to prove anything to ourselves or to anyone else. Christ receives us, counts us not guilty. And so part of what it means to have everything we need to enjoy is to be freed from the guilt of our sin that separated us from God. And the other part is now we are free to then love. To love as God loves I love how 1 Corinthians 13 says it, so let me, let me preach it to you now when you're not in a wedding ceremony. All right, maybe you'll hear it more freshly. We're freed to love. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Do you see the opposite of what Paul's saying in 1 Timothy 6? It is not arrogant or rude. It's not haughty. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Remember, the truth sets us free. Love bears all things, believes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I love that other translation in the NIV. Love never fails. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest is love. Friends, there's no taxes on love. There's no debt to love. Christ has paid it all. 
And those of us that have Jesus through faith in Him, in His sacrificial life, death, and resurrection, we are free to enjoy His love and then offer His love to others. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. So love is what we all want. Love is what we need. And love is the very thing that we have been provided for richly in Christ. And so because God is love, through His Son, He has made it possible for us to enjoy His reconciling love and then to then love others as uh, He has loved us. And guys, that's wealth. That's our wealth. That's our riches. That's our life. Freed from guilt. Not needing to prove anything to anyone. Not independent though. Not independent. Not independence. Independence is not slavery. This is one of the only times in the American week somebody's going to tell you that. We are dependent, and the more dependent we are on God and God's people, the more free we are. As we are freed from guilt against God, free to love God, free to love God's people, death to self, alive to God, alive to love people, that's freedom. And that's what we have in Christ. This is the good life. I don't know if you ever thought of it this way. Most people think of this as being enslaving, and it is enslaving, enslaving to the good life. It's hard. Jesus says it was hard. Narrow is the way and hard is the way that leads to life. Death to self, alive to God. This is the good life. This is the everything we need to enjoy, as Paul says. We can take hold of true life, true freedom. We are not bound by trying to find meaning in ourselves or in the material things that this world so often tempts us with. Our identities are wrapped up in Jesus. I love that line uh, from that song that I think this church, if I had to say top ten list of Restoration Church, we sing this song so beautifully. We should have sang it this morning. I love that line from Be Thou My Vision. Be thou my vision that says, Riches I heed or want not, nor man's empty praise. Thou mine inheritance, now and always. Thou and thou only, first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. And you say, well, okay, Nathan. True. Sets me free. Still in the abstract. Can you pull it down a little bit for me? Let me see if I can try. I think you begin to see how we can make this a little bit more uh, practical there in verse 19 when Paul talks about taking hold of that which is true life. But I want you to see, back up to verse 5 of chapter 6. I think you'll get a little bit more. We're going to kind of pull this down a little bit. I think you'll get more of an answer to the more practical understanding. He's describing here in verse 5 of chapter 6 a people that teach unsound or unhealthy doctrine. Which, just to be clear there, the Bible understands there's sound doctrine and there's unsound doctrine. And he says that those people, the people that are teaching unsound doctrine, are, are, constant, are, are people that are constant in friction. Sound like our modern day? Constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the thing that sets you free, deprived of truth. Imagining, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they are enslaved. There's another way of saying that. Here's, here he's talking about people that can use the name of God to make money. We can think of false teachers today that are fleecing their congregations for jets or houses or nicer cars. And look what he says of that in verse 6 of chapter 6. But godliness, here's where it gets really practical, or more practical, verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, 
With these we will be content. And herein is our practical answer. Friends, learn to be content with what you have. Learn to be content with what you have. Contentment there means to be satisfied. Satisfied with what you need. Not what you want. It's a sort of a word in our home, isn't it? Judah and Elisha. We don't, people say, I need, you know, a new, whatever, shirt. No, 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 no. You don't need a new shirt. You want a new shirt. Right? Let's make that really clear, right? Learn to be content with what you have. Food and clothing. That's verse six. Food and clothing that is sufficient for what we need. Guys, that doesn't mean that you can't find, you can't go to a nice meal. Listen, I'm not going to judge you if I run into you at a, an outlet store somewhere, all right? It's not what he's saying. So, does it mean that you can't eat a nice meal? Does it mean you can't buy some extra clothes? Paul is getting at the frame of your soul. That's what he's after. You don't, you've got to get to a place where you understand you don't need those things. You're able to live without abundant food and clothing, etc. But also, look down there in verse 11 of chapter 6. Flee these things, that is the pursuit of riches. Flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. And then he sums it all up well, I think. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Or again, in verse 19 of chapter 6, all the things of the Lord that God has richly provided for us. So contentment with material goods, contentment with those who are in Christ that we, and all that we have in Him, satisfied, saying to ourselves, all I need is Jesus and some food and some clothes and some shelter. So try to get to that place. That's our goal. And when we do that, guys, when we get to a place where we say, all I need is in Jesus. He defines me. He quiets my soul. His love is what I need. And I need some food, need some clothing, need a job to pay for bills. And I don't need extravagant stuff, just sort of nice stuff. When we get there, when we're content, not discontent like advertisers want us to be, when we get content, two things are going to happen. First, we aren't going to crave money and the things that money can get us. Because we recognize they're not going to satisfy us. We're aware of that already. So this is, let me bring you into my little world. So I've got a pair of tennis shoes that I run, and on the back heels of them, they're all jacked up. Right? And I keep looking at them, I'm like, man, I wish they'd get really messed up so I can buy new shoes. And I say to myself, well, you know, if I get new shoes, they'll be lighter, I'll run faster, it's going to be better. But I keep resisting, literally. I'll get, come back from a run, I'll look at them, I'll kind of, man, I can still use them. You know? <laughs> Now, now, here's the thing. Like, am I free to go buy another pair of shoes? I'm free, right? But, but what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to teach myself to be content so I don't crave those things and I resist the lie that those new shoes are in some ways going to satisfy. I try to work against that. It's me trying to be content. That's one way that you'll see. So first, it'll, it'll, it'll make you not crave money because you'll understand that those things are not going to make you um, satisfying. You're going to be more content. And two... As a result of that, as a result of you being more content with what you have, what you're then going to, it's going to result in is you're going to be more generous. That's what will happen. You'll be more generous because you'll understand what true freedom is. We can be generous with our money and out of love for God and love for others, we can use our time and our treasures for others. So when we are content with who we are in Christ, we will then be content with the food and the clothing that we need. Therefore, we can love our neighbor by giving generously of our time and our treasures to them. That's freedom. That's freedom. 
Slavery is the opposite. It's hoarding. It's keeping. It's doing everything necessary to make more and more, to spend more, because we think those things are going to make us content. It's centered on the me. Freedom is the opposite. Freedom is living for the glory of Christ and the good of others. The world is teaching us that this is freedom, and Christ teaches us that this is freedom. That's exactly what Paul says next to Timothy. Look at verse 18. Referencing the rich again. They are to do good. To be rich in good works. To be generous. Ready to share. Or in a word, loving God by loving people with our time and treasures. That's freedom. That's freedom. We don't need to hold on to it. We have all we need in Jesus and in Jesus' people. He defines us. He gives us everything we need. So therefore, after I have made provision for my needs, I'm able to be generous out of love for Jesus and love for His people and love for the poor, love for the needy of this community all over the place. I can then freely go to them. And by the way, let me just say this. This is precisely why debt is so often pictured as slavery in the Bible. Because it doesn't allow us to be free. It doesn't allow us to be generous since we are indebted to something or someone else. So let me take just a minute. Let me step out of the flow of the sermon here just for a moment. And let me speak to those of you that are in debt, which I'm assuming is most of you. And again, I'm thinking of you college students who are in the middle. It's like I'm accumulating it every day. Let me speak to you just for a moment. Two things about debt. One, your debt, if you are in Christ, if you're trusting Jesus for salvation, your debt does not define you. You need to know that. Your debt does not define you. God loves you. God is for you. He sings over you. Zephaniah 3 tells us. He is for you. Your debt does not define you. But the second thing I would say to you is if you're in debt, do whatever you can to get out of it. Do whatever you can to get out of it. Because that debt is checking your freedom. It's checking your joy, as it were. Do what it takes to get to a place where you can enjoy your freedom by loving others and sharing what you have. And by the way, you'll notice this passage is not only financial, it's also time. Spending time. Do be rich in good deeds. So your debt, if you're in Christ, does not define you, but do what it takes to get out of it so that you can enjoy your freedom. All right, back into the sermon. Here we go. So we've said freedom with our money is believing that we can have been delivered from the slavery of thinking money can buy me joy, free to love, free to be generous. This is true freedom. And I think all of you have experienced this, haven't you? You ever bought something for somebody at Christmas or a birthday that you know they wanted, right? And you couldn't wait for them to open it up. I mean, I do this, and this is more often now like, you know, this is not because I'm a great godly man, but like at Christmas, it's so much more fun to watch my boys open up their gifts. You know, like, oh, this is going to be great. Like, thanks for the, uh, for the gift card to Starbucks. I'm so thankful for that. But man, like, let's see, let's see Judah. He's going to get that thing. Can't wait. What's, what's his face going to do when he lights up? That's picturing freedom. It's picturing freedom. This is exactly what we see in the life of Jesus. Right? And we also see it in the command of Jesus. Acts 20, verse 35. This is a verse we quote often in our house. It is better to, y'all know this verse, it is better to, Give than it is to receive. Yeah, that's freedom. And that's what Jesus did in the Gospel. He gave all of Himself. That's what He gave us freedom for. And that's how we live and enjoy our freedom in Christ. Let me try to be a little bit more practical here. I do believe that our financial giving as Christians should start with the church. Okay, now's when He's doing His thing. Right? That's what you're thinking. No. 
No, financial, financial giving to the local church is not an obligation, but it is part of your liberation as a Christian. Paul says as much right here in this very same level. Look at chapter 3, verse 15. When he says the church, what does he call it? The household of God. A pillar and buttress of the truth. The Bible doesn't say that about anything else. Household of God. The church is a household of God. Pillar and buttress of the truth. He says in verse 17 and 18 that elders who labor in preaching and teaching should not be muzzled like an ox when it treads the grain. In other words, since the church is the pillar and buttress of the truth, make sure and compensate those that are teaching you so that that so that they're teaching you that truth so that they can be devoted to that work as much as possible for the glory of God and the gladness of your souls and the good of the neighbors of this community. Giving to the church is loving God. Giving to the church is loving neighbor. Giving to the church honors God. Giving to the church, as I said, is not an obligation. It is a conduit of your liberation in Christ. Since the church is the vessel that Jesus ordained to spread His glory on the earth. As I said, guys, I don't, I love, we'll get to this later. But anyway, so if Christians are meant to be in the church receiving the word as they make provision for themselves, food and clothing, they also are meant to cheerfully and generously make provision for Jesus' bride, his wife, the church. And guys, let me just say, the members of this church do that well. Praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for you. And here's the great thing after that. After we're generously providing for our care, providing us Christians to our local church, after that, we are free to share and be generous with anything else that so accords with the love of God. You're free to do that. You're free to do that. You can and should give to the poor. Not to earn the love of God, but to show you have it. Because you are poor. You can and should help those that are planting churches all over the world. Again, not because you have to, but because you get to. I think one of the most supremest joys in my life as a pastor is helping plant Iglesia Biblica Sublime Gracia. And I can tell you, these uh, brothers Juan Vega is here. I see the this church just in the past few weeks has seen two people come to faith in Christ. So that church didn't exist a year ago. And so this church, not just me, this, you guys, set aside and prayed and labored to find someone to plant this church. And they went over there to Columbia Heights to reach the Spanish speakers of Washington, D.C. And we have and are spending a large amount of our money to help that church go. And I can tell you now, from the guy that used to have to go and raise money to plant this church, I have so much more joy learning about what's going on over there than the, all the money that came to me when I was trying to plant this church. There's so much more joy. Let's give more. Can we f- figure ways out more? I like to tell the story of this church. The only dis- like major disagreement at a members meeting in the life of this church is when we, uh, we agreed, the elders agreed to give like $200 to a foreign missionary, and there was a disagreement. Now, can we give more? That's a good, good discussion. I'm for that. And we did. We did. That's so much more joy and that's so much more freedom. And so this is the task of growing in freedom as it relates uh, to money as a Christian. Learning to resist the marketers that keep trying to make me discontent and spend more money on myself. Learning to be content with who I am in Christ. Take care, yes, of my basic needs. And cheerfully try to help support Jesus' church. Grow in contentedness. Grow in support of giving my time and my treasures to others. Gladly. And the more that I do that, the more freedom I enjoy because that is the nature of Jesus and His Gospel. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Set your hopes on God and find freedom. Resist 
the tempters of the age and find freedom there. Let me finish with a personal story that testifies to hopefully all of this. So it is not uh, my practice, at least I try to limit telling personal stories because I don't want you to be one to, to, to Nathan. I want you to be one to Jesus. But nevertheless, I do think this story will sort of help illustrate uh, these things we've been talking about this morning. Uh, May the 1st, 2000, uh, I was in a farm outside of Memphis, Tennessee. And a pastor came up that I'd never heard of, and he came up and he began to preach. And he said over the course of this sermon, he was preaching from Galatians 6.14, and he talked about how uh, we need to give all to Jesus. We boast not in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on over the course of this sermon to, to share with us that the American dream was a lie. That it won't buy you the joy and happiness of, that uh, so many purport. Well, I listened to this and it gripped me. I was never the same. So there's only maybe three or four sermons, which helps me because I, anyway. So there's only three or four sermons I can remember. Only three or four sermons that I can remember in my lifetime. This is one of them I've held on to because I was a different man on the other side of that sermon. But I began to see that American dream is a lie. But here's the thing. I didn't quite believe that he was right. It jarred me, but it didn't change me. And so uh, I was at the front end of my young career. And so I was in sales and, and I went on to make a good bit of money over the course of those next few years. And so I eventually met my wife. We got married and uh, we bought. Uh, we had, I was in sales. So I was had a expense accounts. So I was traveling all over the country, going to great places, not on my dime, eating at steakhouses. You know, and just, you know, bring me the head of a pig. You know, just bring it all over here. And I didn't have to pay for it. Uh, flying to different cities and all these kinds of things. And my wife and I were enjoying this together. We would, you know, she had a trip there and I'd go meet her there. It was great. Free. It was wonderful. We bought a new house, 24 square hundred feet. I think it was four bedrooms, backyard. We bought a new car. Uh, we're flying all over the place. And uh, that thing that jarred me, I began to then experience it. I was about three years, four years into it. And I went, this is it? Yeah, we were living close to family. And we just sort of said, Andy, my wife and I looked at each other and just like, this is, this is all there is? I mean, it's nice, but so what? That doesn't mean that you shouldn't buy houses and cars. I'm not saying that. I'm, again, I'm getting at the hope. I'm getting at the frame of your soul, what you're setting your hope on. We got into that. And then, uh, long story short, um, we uh, were I was I was uh, our company dissolved. They offered me another position. I didn't want it. I was made I made another offer to to make a lot of money uh, by being a southeastern region, uh, regional manager for a plastics company working from home. And I turned it down and I went to seminary. Uh, and here's why, because over the course of that last year or so, my wife and I just started discipling people in the church and I just loved it. There was so much more joy in that, giving away, trying to help people follow Jesus than there was in sort of doing all that other stuff. And so when I got that call, turned down that job, I said, let's go to seminary. And we moved, we sold our house and we moved into about a 900 square foot apartment on the bottom floor called Flaherty Farms. We called it Fertility Farms because everybody that moved in there had a bunch of babies. Uh, (laughs) And we didn't have any kids at the time. And we moved in there and we lived in this tiny little apartment, didn't know, well, we knew one or two other people there. And over the course of that time, what I began to find was that sermon that I listened to back in May of 2000 was right. I began to see that I didn't need all that other stuff. I just needed Jesus. I needed Jesus' people. I needed to be generous with my life with the people that don't know Jesus. And just live for them, love them, care for them with uh, the hope of the glory of Christ. 
And we moved here to Washington, D.C., where you need eight gazillion dollars to live. And, you know, and we get by. We're fine. We're quite, you know, we don't think we have too much. Don't we have, we don't have too little. And I find so much joy. I think my wife would testify to the same thing. I find so much joy in loving Jesus and loving Jesus' people. I get so much joy in trying to, I I understand all the people can come up and ask for money after this, but we get joy in helping other people follow Jesus and giving money to that. Uh, and I found that I don't need that other stuff. I found there's so much more contentment in Christ and living for His glory and that heavenly world that Paul points us to in 1 Timothy 6. That's freedom. That's joy. And there's one place that you can be confident in the American week that you can come and hear that time and again. And that's at your local church that preaches the gospel and preaches the Bible. Not just any church. Churches that preaches the Bible. That's why this meeting is so important. So you can work against the lies of this world and live in the freedom of Christ. And so with that, let's pray. Father God, we do thank You for the wealth of Jesus. We praise You, God, that in Jesus You have richly provided us with everything to enjoy. So teach us to Resist the lies of this world that money will get us contentment. And teach us to rest in Jesus. And the contentment that we have in Him. And may God teach us to then be generous with our time and with our treasure. And may we then enjoy our freedom in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.